0: dramas. This is the podcast that discusses Chinese culture and history through historical Chinese dramas. This week, it'll just be me, Kathy. Today, we will discuss episodes 24 and 25 of the story of Yanxi Palace or Yanxi Kung Lue. This podcast is in English with proper nouns and certain phrases spoken in Mandarin Chinese. For these episodes, we will do a drama episode recap and then go into the history and culture discussed in the drama. Do check us out on Instagram or Twitter at Chasing Dramas and also visit us on our website at ChasingDramas.com. We have posted some more drama reviews, so take a look and let us know your thoughts. Now on to the episode recap. In the last episode, we finally found out who was the person that harmed Ying Luo's beloved sister and killed her. Or did we? Well, we know who defiled her. It was the emperor's brother, the prince of He or Hongzhou. Hongzhou is an arrogant man who loved playing planks on people and played with women. Despite Ying Luo's anger at Hongzhou, though, there is not much he can do in terms of revenge because he publicly states in front of the Empress herself and Fu Cha Fu Hong as well as Ying Luo that not only will he consider her deceased sister as his concubine, thus giving her status in his household, he will also help her father gain a post in the imperial household department. This will provide the Wei family with much needed prestigious wealth. Faced with these pressures, Ying Luo has no option but to back down and let this man get off scot-free. Though we know Ying Luo, she's not going to take things so easily. However, an issue with Fu Hong so publicly helping Ying Luo resolve her matter of her sister's death is that his actions are very blatant in his attentions towards Ying Luo. Observant individuals, a.k.a. everyone, can see that he behaves unusually towards Ying Luo, which starts garnering jealousy of at least one person in the palace. We will see more of this in future episodes. The absurd and unruly behavior from Hongzhou travels all the way up to the ears of the Empress Dowager, who discusses this unruly son with her mother, Yu Taifei, a new character in the drama. She is shown to be extremely kind and a devoted follower of Buddhist teachings. She has her work cut out for her because her son causes so much drama. And indeed, Hongzhou, um, just doesn't stop. Once he settles his affairs over Yingluo's sister, he turns his untoward gaze towards Yingluo. <clears throat> it's very creepy. He doesn't care that her sister is dead because of him at all, or the fact that he raped her. He now wants Ying Luo. The fundamental issue is that Hong Zhou believes he's above all retribution because he has so much power and authority. After seeing Ying Luo walk around the palace, he thinks that she's rather pretty, prettier than even her sister, so why not? He wants to see what he can get. That night, he sees Yinglo walk off with a basket filled to the brim and decides to stalk her. He swaps clothes with his eunuch and that's how he's able to remain in the palace at night when technically he should have left the palace as per palace rules. She follows Yinglo in the dark to the gardens where she brings out candles that she says she's using to pray for her deceased sister. They play a rather flirtatious game where Hongzhou states he has to turn her in because such acts are not allowed in the palace, while Luo is rather cozy with her pleas to not do that. But this was all a ruse on Yinglou's part. She pretended to be flirty with Hongzhou only to take out a candle with sleep-inducing powers. Her goal is to personally enact revenge and kill Hongzhou for what he did to her sister. The problem is, her actions were too rash this time and Hongzhou was able to escape into the trees while Yinglo tried to attack him. He runs off screaming for help and shortly after catches the attention of the emperor who orders his guards to figure out where the screaming came from. Seeing that she won't be able to kill him that night, Yingluo swiftly changes tactics and tears open her clothes. She drowns out Hongzhou's screams for help with screams of her own and runs over to where guards and the emperor are. In front of the emperor, he yells that it was Hongzhou who sneaked behind her and wanted to kill her. Personally, why do I feel like Luo's intelligence fell for half a second when she was trying to kill Hongzhou and then instantly came back? I feel like she could have killed him if she wanted to or if the plot allowed. But it's just me and also um, Hongzhou didn't die <laughs> in real life, so I guess it's like plot armor uh, for him. Hongzhou tries to deny Luo's claims and instead turns it back on her, but Luo cries that the palace doors are locked already. Why is he and eunuchs close in the palace this late at night? He must want to do something untowards, which is why he's here. And I mean, yeah, it looks bad for Hongzhou because she's not wrong. The emperor even turns his suspicious gaze on to Hongzhou and tells him to shut up when Hongzhou tries to argue back. In a surprising move, The emperor slaps Hongzhou across the face when he gets up to try to attack Yingluo. Hongzhou is dragged off by the emperor to question them back in his palace. I feel like right now, maybe this is just me, that the drama is moving at a lightning pace because just as Yingluo is being questioned by the emperor, and let's be real, the emperor is getting more and more angry at her, the empress arrives to cover for Yingluo. The empress knows just how close of a relationship Hongzhou and the emperor have together and steps in to protect Yingluo. Man, um, yeah. Once again, this relationship between the empress and Yingluo is absolutely the best in the palace. The other person that arrives to protect her charge is Yu Taifei, Hongzhou's mother. She is told about what Hongzhou did tonight and is appalled. She takes out a whip, which she just so happens to have on hand and in front of the emperor, the empress, and Ying Luo beats the living daylight out of Hongzhou. She hits him so hard that he passes out. I, for one, was very happy that this happened, even if, you know... Yu Taifei has other intentions because finally something happens to this arrogant ugh, man. Even if Ying Luo didn't kill him, you could tell she was quite pleased with the fact that this guy was beaten to a pulp. To make matters worse or better, depending on your perspective, Hongzhou is paid a visit by Fu Hong, who also threatens him to stay away from Ying Luo. Finally, we get to see. Hung be a badass instead of just being like a stoic person and say, like, don't do anything. All right, I will give both Hung and the Empress some kudos in this episode. I mean, I will always give the Empress some kudos. (laughs) Oftentimes, not always, when there are individuals who behave the way Hongzhou does, it's because he's been spoiled his entire life. In this case, it's not only by his brother, the emperor, but it seems also by his mother. After the debacle with Ying Luo, Yu Taifei actually goes to Changchun Gong to apologize to Ying Luo for her son's actions. She doesn't just apologize, she actually kneels in front of Ying Luo. That's a huge sign of respect and quite a step for Yu Taifei to take. Yu Yitai begs Ying Luo to forgive Hong Zhou, but... And this is Ying Luo at her finest. Ying Luo point blank refuses. Well, I know this is Ying Luo's character, but I feel like in this instance, maybe she could have been a little less adamant, at least to Yu Yitai face. Well, Yu Yitai doesn't take this kindly because trouble finds Ying Luo immediately. When she goes to return to medicine to the doctor Yi Tian Shi, she finds that he is bound and gagged on the side. Immediately, a eunuch attacks Yinguo and tries to kill her. She manages to escape and does an impressive dash out of the yard, staving off a number of assassin eunuchs. Luckily, her knight in shining armor, Fu Hung, arrives and helps protect her. None of the killers stay alive, though, so they are left without evidence on who sent them or why. Except, out of all the people in the palace who would want to kill Yingluo at this point, there is only one person who would do it this way. It's not Hongzhou, who is currently bedridden due to his injuries, and it's not the emperor because he would not use such tactics to kill Yingluo. So, who could it be? Instead, we see the emperor being given lotus flower pastries that Yu Taifei made herself. While very delicate, the emperor knew immediately that this was a reminder from Yu Taifei about Hongzhou. It turns out that when the emperor was young, and not named crown prince yet, he was given a plate of lotus flower pastries from his brother, the third prince. Before he could take a bite, the fifth prince, Hongzhou, ran off with the pastries. It's implied that the pastry was poisoned and caused the fifth prince to subsequently have ill health. This pastry is a reminder that the emperor owes Hongzhou his life. Now, I guess we get another reason for why the emperor has turned a blind eye to so many of Hongzhou's atrocities. Do we excuse him? I mean, I certainly don't. We get a brief and funny interlude, however, as we are now in the summertime. Everyone in the palace is sweltering in the summer heat and looking for ways to cool down. The Imperial Household Department sends over blocks of ice to the respective palaces to keep the masters cool. Yingluo comes up with an interesting tactic. She pretty much creates a refrigerator that uses lead. And this cabinet allows um, for drinks and fruit to be kept cool, which will help with the heat. Ying Luo is most definitely a modern woman who went back in time. Otherwise, how would she know how to do all this? It's just hilarious how many things she's invented or done that are like way ahead of her time. We will talk about ice boxes later in this episode. The Emperor arrives and is quite impressed with the cabinet and instructs a few more to be created for the Empress Dowager and others. He does take the opportunity to inform the Empress and also Yingluo, who's on the side, that Hongzhou is extremely ill. Do you see that smirk on Yingluo's face? Hmm. But the Emperor sternly states that he will make judgment after Hongzhou is fully recovered and will not allow anyone to overstep their authority before that. Clearly, this was said for Yingluo to hear him. Yinguo, though, immediately gets an opportunity to get back at the emperor. After learning that the emperor loves eating cold grapes in the summer, she immediately gifts an extra refrigerator ice cabinet thing to the emperor. This allows the emperor to eat tons of grapes while working. But just as he's wolfing down large quantities of grapes, he starts getting a stomach ache and rushes to the bathroom. This is such a funny scene, but uh, I feel pretty bad for the eunuchs that have to tend to the emperor when he's uh, dealing with an upset stomach. (laughs) Turns out, this was, of course, all Yingluo is doing. Well, partly. We find out that mm, you're not supposed to eat too many frozen grapes paired with tea because this will cause diarrhea. And who's been eating tons of grapes and also loves drinking tea? Well, the emperor. So this is Ying Luo's little trick to get back at him, but, um, you know, it can't really trace back to Ying Luo because the emperor chose to eat and drink uh, those specific items. <laughs> After that interlude, let's get back to the main conflict. Yu Tai Fei is not as kind as she seems. She's extremely angry at Ying Luo for what she did to her precious son, Highly displeased with Yingluo, she calls Luo to her palace under the guise of helping her create an ice cabinet. At her palace, her guise comes off and she turns lethal. It makes sense since Luo actually placed a bloody hand of one of the assassins in the ice box given to Yu Taifei that scared her. Yu Taifei, I mean, sort of in this sense, has a right to kind of retaliate. Yingluo is not blind and can tell that it was Yudhaifei that ultimately killed her sister and ordered the attack on her. Behind the facade of being a devoted believer in Buddha, Taifei is just as lethal and just as cunning as they come in the palace. Yudhaifei doesn't deny any of Yingluo's claims. She says she did it because she cannot stand these filthy women seducing her son. She then threatens Ying Luo that if she does anything against her or her son again, she will bring down the entire Wei family as well. This deeply impacts Ying Luo as she now realizes that she cannot enact her true revenge. Back at the Changchun Palace, Ying Luo is persuaded to join the other maids in a game. Ying Luo is in no mood for games but joins in determined to succeed. The game is rather simple. In a bowl of clear water, one has to try to drop a needle into the bowl so that the needle floats rather than sinks. Yingluo fails repeatedly but continues to try until deep in the evening and even after all the maids have left. The Empress arrives and seeing Yingluo in her troubled state tries to console her. She understands that Ying Luo is upset at what befell her sister and also what she's endured. She urges Ying Luo to learn to be patient only until she has her inner strength and when the fates aligned, should she retaliate. The Empress is just so good to Ying Luo here. Oh, don't you wish she had a mentor like her? Well, I mean, and then the Empress also has crazy skills because, uh... The empress tries once and is is successful in having the needle stay at the top of the water. The episode ends with Ying Luo taking those words to heart, and we transition to the matter between Ying Luo and Fu Hong, which we will explore in episode 26. Alright, that was the episode recap. Let's turn our attention towards some history and culture that was discussed in these two episodes. So first up, I actually want to discuss Ye Tian Shi, the physician. He played an important part in saving the fifth prince, Waga, earlier on in this series. Um, and we see him quite a bit more in these two episodes. He's currently stuck as an imperial doctor, which he doesn't want. And he's like, let me out. (laughs) But this is a real guy in history. Ye Tian Shi, who lived from 1667 to 1747, was a medical scholar and physician who was a major proponent of the School of Warm Diseases. In this drama, he seems to be in his 40s or so, but he's actually supposed to be in his 70s at this point in time. Ye Tian Shi comes from a family of physicians and grew up in present-day Suzhou, China. He started his apprenticeship under his father at the age of 12 and was lucky enough to study under over dozens of physicians throughout the course of his career. Over the course of his career, he was, as I mentioned, a major proponent of the school of warm diseases that developed during the Ming and Qing dynasties. He was also one of the first to diagnose scarlet fever in China and specialized in epidemics such as smallpox. He had many pupils during his lifetime, and his teachings were the basis of the Yi School of Medicine. His sons were also physicians, but their skill was overshadowed by their father. I mean, poor guys. He didn't write much during his lifetime, Shu, that is, because of his busy schedule, so the three major works that are attributed to him were actually compiled by his pupils in his later years. His major work, Wen 温热論, or the discussion of warm diseases, was published in 1746. The main takeaway of that work was the manifestation of diseases into four stages, which is wei, qi, ying, and xue. Wei meaning the defensive phase, qi or the qi phase, ying or the nutritious phase or nutrient phase, and xue or the blood phase. I'm not a doctor, so I will not comment on the validity of these uh, discussions, but they did have an impact to the rest of Chinese society at that time. Yi Tian is looked upon very favorably by historians because he was an excellent physician in many medical fields, including pediatrics, gynecology, internal medicine, and surgery. Again, I mean, those definitions back in the day in the 16th, sorry, in the 17th and 18th century are different from what we have now, but this just means he was an all-around great physician. Ye Shu was an avid student and continued to seek study uh, with any other doctors that he found um, had something to teach. And because of this, was a model for his pupils. In my research, it doesn't seem like Ye Tianxi was an imperial doctor even for a while. But let's just say that he was indeed a very influential physician during this time. So, you know, he might have been summoned to the palace to assist with some uh, ailments, but I think he spent most of his time uh, just serving the people. Oh, in his portraits, he looks to be a much skinnier man with a skinny beard and mustache. So uh, not like the (laughs) drama portrayal at all. So once again, he's a real person, but maybe uh, not quite the same person as in the drama. All right, the next topic that I want to talk about is ice and the ice cabinet. We talked about ice in episode 11 of Empresses in the Palace, so here's a little refresher and we have some more information. The usage of ice dates back thousands of years in China. There are records of buying and selling ice all the way back to the Tang dynasty some 1400 years ago, but of course usage of ice dates even before then. The main clientele for ice was of course the rich and powerful and, you know, the imperial family. Ice vaults were built underground some four to five meters deep and straw would be placed on the ground. Depending on where you were, ice would be transported from the north to these vaults. During the winter, ice was mainly cut from frozen lakes, and it was important to have thick blocks of ice so as the fact that they won't melt easily. The ice uh, blocks are then lowered into the vault and sealed with dirt and more straw. When summer came, people would open the vault for consumption of the ice. Because ice was such a luxury item, the rich pre-ordered their ice and came to pick it up once the vault was open. In the palace, there were special lead and tin containers that could keep the ice frozen for a longer period of time, which is what we see in the drama. I've actually seen modern uh, reenactments of uh, how ice is stored um, up until the summer, and they actually have those in the U.S., and it's basically a similar concept. Build a vault, store the ice, and it must be tightly packed to keep the environment and the ice frozen. During the Ming and Qing dynasties, the storage and usage of ice became more ubiquitous, especially since Beijing is in the north and gets quite cold in the winter. In the capital city, there were several vaults dedicated to ice storage, and there are clear documents on where they are. The Ministry of Works, or Gongbu, was actually in charge of distribution of ice from the government vaults to government officials. There was essentially a food stamp system so that, you know, based on the rank, you get more ice. Now, the name Bingjian or essentially the ice box was first named way back in the Zhou dynasty over 2500 years ago. The name can be found in Shijing or the Book of Song. They were typically made with wood and lined with tin or lead, as mentioned earlier. The wood used could be rosewood or um, Cupressus funabris. Apologies, uh, I'm not very familiar with Latin. Um, but so those were the typical, uh, types of wood that would be used. And sometimes the containers were made with porcelain enamel. There were various styles of ice boxes and the type shown in the drama is one kind as in, um, you have, uh, the covers on the top. And typically, though, it was the ice that was placed on the top and then there was a second layer on the bottom to keep the fruit and vegetables fresh. Ice was definitely a luxury item, but because we're in the palace, of course, the emperor and empress have access to ice. And lastly, I want to talk about qiqiao. The needle game the ladies are playing, as discussed in the drama, is... In celebration of qiqiao on the seventh day of the seventh month of the lunar new year all of the women pray to the Junui star or vega star for nimble fingers and luck women pray to Junui because she is also known in chinese culture as the weaver girl star the phrase is called qiqiao zhiqiao which is shortened to qiqiao The seventh day of the seventh month of the Lunar New Year is also known as Chinese Valentine's Day. The women pray to Zhinyi to have nimble and crafty fingers or xiao shou so that they can marry a nice man. The festival of qiqiao or qiqi dates back to the Han Dynasty some 2,000 years ago and has continued till today. During the festival, girls make a display of their domestic skills in hopes of being blessed with good luck. Different regions have different traditions, but several staples include attempting to thread needles in different conditions, baking, and crafting of various items. There are records of the festival dating back to the Han Dynasty, with women threading seven needles in the moonlight as a symbol of good luck. In Dongjing Lu*, the eastern capital, A Dream of Splendor, which is a memoir written by Meng Yuanlao in 1127, it recounts the various pastries and desserts that were made for the Qixi Festival. Typically, ingredients included, you know, the standard oil, flour, honey, and sugar, but they were made specific for the festival. During the Song and Yuan dynasties, the Qixi or Qiqiaojie was a big festival. There are records stating that it was even difficult to travel by carriage during the festival just because of the throngs of people around. The game that the maids play in the story of Yanxi Palace is also true to history. It is colloquially known as diouzhe or the dropping of the needle. This was actually a popular game during the Ming and Qing dynasties. The purpose was, of course, to see if the woman was quote-unquote skillful or chiao enough to have the needle float on the water. In my research, it seems like there was a lot of prep that went into this game, especially the water itself, and that was like more of what led to a successful attempt. The water must be gathered at night and left outside for the duration of the next day. So apparently, sunshine will create a small layer at the top of the water that will allow the needle to float. Now, I've never tried this, so I don't know if that's true or not. Maybe there's some like mysterious oils that people put in the water to cheat. Um, But when I read this, I was like, okay, um, I'll take whoever wrote this word for it. Nowadays, there is a resurgence in the celebration of T.C. in China, although it's mainly now like a shopping holiday. I mean, what isn't? Places in China, though, are bringing back traditions to celebrate this day, and they can be quite extravagant. TC is definitely more of a celebration of women or womanhood, so it's um, quite uh, cool to see all the women in, for example, the villages and in the particular family dress up to pray to the ancestors or to the gods for good luck. All right, and that is it for this episode uh, we now see the true faces of, I would say, Hongzhou and Taifei. Now we will turn our attention to Yingluo and Fu Hong's relationship in the next couple of episodes. If you're looking for sites to watch Chinese dramas and you're in the U.S., head over to our sponsor, Jubao TV. That's J-U-B-A-O TV. It's a free service that has a selection of Chinese dramas and movies to watch. You can stream it through the website, Zumo X-U-M-O, or else access it on TV. If you have Xfinity or Cox Contour, they've also launched on Sling TV. So you can see and watch whenever on the go. Again, all of this is free. And that is that for this podcast episode. Thank you so much for joining and we will catch you all in the next episode.